I'll pass on to you then. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you very you. much indeed for, uh, for the invite. Very nice to be back, back here in, in Oxford after, after 20 years or so. Um, I suspect my talk is going to look very different to a lot of the talks that you've seen uh, today. Um, I'm going to talk from the perspective of an insurance, uh, uh, insurance company uh, and the sort of various uh, uh, sort of uh, communication of risk that, that, that goes on, and not just with consumers, but also with, uh, with the market as well, which for, uh, for all of my clients uh, is, is, is particularly, uh, particularly uh, important. So what I wanted to do, first of all, is just have a think about how uh, insurance companies uh, communicate. And the point I wanted to make there, I guess, was that um, for a lot of uh, the communication that uh, insurance companies uh, do when they're talking to consumers, especially on general insurance and car insurance, and home insurance, well, they're using comedy. And they don't actually talk about risks uh, at all. Um, when you do see things uh, where people are talking about car insurance, it does make it into the press. It's normally uh, pejorative. It's normally about uh, premiums increasing and people complaining about that. But for the companies themselves, they tend to keep their communications on general insurance um, sort of light-hearted. Light so I wanted to talk a bit about, just show you some of the other sort of adverts. I did have one with, uh, with Paul Whitehouse, actually, on life insurance and term insurance. But frankly, it was so, so depressing, I didn't really want to share that with you because it's a, it was a burst into tears at the end of it. But basically, when, people talk, when companies start to talk about term insurance and they're talking about life insurance, um, it's pretty much babies and small children um, everywhere. That's uh, that's the tugging at the heartstrings. Again, they're not really, they're never really talking about probabilities. It's always uh, very much trying to tap into the emotions of uh, of parents, particularly to to try and uh, get them to to buy the product. Never even really trying to sell it on 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 the cost. Savings uh, tend to take a slightly different uh, approach to that. It's much more aspirational, the conversations that uh, insurance companies, life insurers, tend to have with their clients. I took this one from Allianz uh, Suisse, but it's uh, typical of the kind of things that, that one sees. Again, if you looked in the small print of the, of, the, of the advert, you'd probably find something saying that your investment can go down as well as, as, well as up, but that's not really, uh, not really uh, the major selling point of any of the communication. I have highlighted over here something called the principles and practices of financial management, because it won't have escaped your attention, especially if you're a policyholder with equitable life in the UK, uh, that sometimes things go wrong when people invest uh, in, uh, in life insurance companies. And, uh, and the industry took uh, quite a battering from, uh, from the government um, and the regulator on that. One of the upshots of it was this thing called the PPFM. And this is a document which... Uh, uh, companies on selling unit link products, selling uh, with profit policies, have to now provide to their policyholders to very clearly uh, articulate to their policyholders exactly how they're going to make decisions around risk and and the risks that they're going uh, they're going they're going to be running running. Um, sometimes these things unfortunately run to 20 pages, so they haven't actually always done their job. And now there's a new batch of them called consumer friendly PPFMs, which have been uh, been been released which only run to about five pages. Um, general insurance, well, we had that again. So general insurance, we've seen the, we have the funny adverts. Uh, they also go for danger as well, sort of like on, on general insurance. So a rock might fall on your car. If you're particularly scared of black cats, then go to IF, who will sell you a car insurance policy against, uh, against black cats. I'm from Norway here, I see, so probably recognise the recognise IF. Uh, and if you want to, an LV are sort of going to help you to 
break your fall with a big, horrible, uh, heart-shaped uh, balloon, by the look of it. Um, and there's lots and lots of comedy in not talking about risks at all. So I wanted to talk a bit, because um, I've only got 10 minutes, um, talk a bit about insurers. And this is where um, I certainly do a lot of my work inside insurers, trying to help uh, people understand risk. And I suppose the first thing I wanted to make, the point I wanted to make was that for a lot of insurance companies, they try to map the, uh, the complexity of risk onto one single real number called capital. And that's the way in which, that's their preferred way of communicating risk, um, not just with the market, as we'll see in shortly, but also internally. So for example, this is, this is what you might typically see. I'm going to move away from mics, so I hope you can still hear me. So they might look at different strategies that they could follow as a company. Uh, they would then work out what the return is, uh, and they would work out what the risk is. They might map these out, and obviously things that have the same level of risk or high level of return are good things to do as a company. They're going to make you more money. Uh, they might try and map it out as well. So you've got like a green box up here where you've got high returns and low risk. So that's a good place to be. And a red box down here, which is a bad place to be where you have high risk and, and low return. What do they mean by return and what do they mean by risk? Well, I'll try to map that out for you over here. They, what they really mean, often when they're talking internally, is they mean capital. They've got a big amount of money on their balance sheet that belongs to their shareholders and their, their bondholders. It's at risk. If things go badly wrong, it can get eroded. So the more capital they have to hold, the, uh, the higher the risk, they would say. And they want to grow this capital so they can give it back to shareholders and they can pay off their, their bondholders. They'll have quantitative models behind all of this stuff. And, um, uh, manifested that as a, a big distribution down here with a sort of uh, skewed distribution with a downside, downside skewed the tail. Behind these distributions are massive statistical models. So um, they're not necessarily, I wouldn't call them terribly over sophisticated if you look at the, the complexity of modeling that you see in, 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 in science. I mean, they generally use associative measures of dependence, um, typically using Gaussian copulas. Occasionally, you'll find a teacup used in them. Um, a lot of the challenges that they have is that they don't have an awful lot of data. So if you've done estimates of correlations, you'll know that you need an awful lot of data to get a robust estimate of correlation. You might only have 10 or 15 data points for a lot of the correlations underlying something like that. Um, things are changing. I want to just highlight two sort of areas of work that, um, that, that my profession, the actuarial profession, is, is trying to push forward and, and help insurers to sort of move into areas that you, some of you will probably already know about, frankly. I mean, I'll put it as new techniques. It's probably not new to some people in this audience, but it is new to people in the financial services sector. Um, so cognitive mapping is, is a technique that we started to use, especially around operational risk, for example, helping people to understand the complexity of risk in their organisation and the fact that things are, are linked all, all, all over the place. Um, helping people to understand what are, the key, what are the key events that could happen inside their company that could manifest themselves as, as quite large risks because they propagate all over, the, all over the place. And also, identify, we often identify gaps in the story. Uh, and this sort of uh, cognitive map is often built up with workshops with the, uh, with, with, the with the company. 
moving on from this as well, what we're, what we're, what we're starting to try and do is, is to take these cognitive maps, distill them down using graph theory, and then sort of build up Bayesian networks as well. So causal, actually model economic capital, but using uh, causal uh, relationships. So conditional probabilities, which people inside the companies actually relate to uh, much, more, much more easily. Uh, and particularly boards as well, because um, boards have got a role now in insurance companies. They're, they're there's a lot of pressure on them to really understand the complexity of the uh, of the financial services companies that they're that they're running, which arguably maybe they they haven't in the past. If you read the RBS report from uh, from the FSA, for example, it was critical of the the level of understanding that the board had of all the risks that were being being run. Um, it's also mentioned risk culture as well. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, dawning on people in the financial services sector that uh, there is such a thing called uh, risk culture within their organisations, and they're now trying to sort of understand what that means for them and, uh, and, and, and measure it, uh, and in some, in some cases change it uh, as well. I wanted to highlight one particular um, sort of piece of work. Uh, which is trying to sort of use something culture theory, which uh, was developed by um, uh, uh, Mary Douglas and uh, Michael Thompson, I think, is, who's, who's one of the uh, developers of this, uh, original developers of this from EASA, is in the audience today uh, as well. Um, we've been trying to sort of like get a, uh, uh, get a push, push this into the industry as well and get people to, to think about these, these, uh, these ideas like culture theory. Often, often being able to engage people like Ginny and Ted. So we had a conference on risk in, in the summer and um, uh, sort of rang up Ginny and, and, and asked her, told, told her what we were doing here and what Michael was doing and, and asked her if she'd be interested in coming and talking about that at the, at the conference because she, she seemed to get the, high, the idea that the, there might be a risk culture issue in financial services. Um, and she very kindly came along to a conference and, and, and talked about that. Um, I think there's still, still there's a way to go to, to, get, um, to get everyone inside financial services organisations to, to buy into that. Uh, but, uh, but we're making some progress. I wanted to talk a bit about the market um, and communicating with the market. Sorry, over here. So we've got this relationship with customers. Um, there's various people who communicate into the insurance as well. These are sort of service providers. Uh, but one of the major things insurance companies have to do is they have to talk to the market. They have to keep the confidence of the market. Um, these are the people who are providing the capital that enables them to uh, produce the products which they sell to the, uh, to the end consumers. So if you look in one of the reports, um, this is uh, an extract from Allianz's uh, annual report, 2011. Uh, this is uh, all the graphs, pretty much, from their risk report. And it's all basically about capital. Virtually everything in there is capital, capital driven. So you could maybe say that for them, capital equals equals risk. Um, which I think is important. It, I think it tells us something about the way the way financial services companies are in terms of the way they think about risk. They they they, they often need to sort of map it onto a, a number, a real number, which they call capital, and therefore implicitly assuming that all of the distributions and all of the uh, dependency structures underlying the models that have produced these numbers are, are, are obviously uh, correct. One of the other things I wanted to highlight for you is uh, something you'll start to see in uh, the reports and accounts of, uh, of insurance companies now, these risk appetite statements which are being demanded by, by regulators. This is, uh, this is Prudentials, and it's reasonably typical of the sort of things you see. They talk about 
earnings volatility, liquidity, uh, capital requirements. Um, I mean, when we go through these things and try to, to put articulate them in, in mathematical terms, it, it starts, you, start to, you start to struggle because they'll talk about things like you know, the volatility going is consistent with expectations of stakeholders, and then they don't tell you what the expectations of stakeholders are. So you haven't really got hard numbers, uh, hard numbers for that. Um, I think I'd be very interested to hear people in the audience's views on sort of um, just how tight uh, or, or loose these, the, the wording that's used uh, here is, because it sounds like you've got a lot more experience of, uh, of dissecting language around risk than, than, than we probably have. I wanted to briefly touch on regulator as well, because the communication with the regulator for financial services companies and insurers in particular is, is very important. Keeping their confidence is very important. Um, there's something called Solvency 2, which um, it's not as a, not, it's kind of the little brother, if you like, of Basel 3. Um, occasionally pops its head up in the FT, but it's not doesn't really get a, a mention that that often. It's seen as a rather dull version of Basel 3, frankly. Um, but one of the things it does do, uh, and I think it's worth mentioning, is it's, it's starting to try and, and, and embed the, the, the risk strategy right at the very heart of the way that insurance companies work. And this is a diagram that we use with, uh, with companies to, to show the flow of information, the flow of risk information uh, around, around, the around the organization. Um, these authors things, this is, this is, a, this is if you like, a, a, a hundred page document trying to articulate exactly all the different risks which the company is exposed to, and that's supposed to be shared with the regulator. Uh, there are various external reports, which I, won't, I haven't put any slides up on that, because frankly they're just pages and pages of tables of numbers, and they're not, they're not terribly, uh, they're not terribly in, in, in insightful unless you've got a, uh, a very big computer and can go and, go and analyse them. So that's my summary. Um, in summary, uh, if we think about risk communication for insurance companies, uh, there's an angle around policyholder communication and how people sell risk protection, uh, often not really talking about probabilities and uh, using uh, devices like comedy to, uh, to circumvent it. Um, there is a thing about communicating risk mid-policy, like those PPFM uh, statements, for example. Um, there's a lot around internal communication, and that's where a particularly active area with uh, in insurance companies at the moment, just making sure that everyone in the organisation really understands what the risks are, and moving away from this, uh, this idea that economic capital is, is all there is to risk. Um, talked a bit about uh, communicating with the market as well, and pointed out a lot of that communication is still very much based on balance sheets and uh, profit and loss uh, metrics, uh, and that the, 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 the regulators, uh, this is from, from Europe as well, from the, from the European Commission, uh, is trying to embed risk appetite statements and understanding about risk and communicating of that risk to the wider market uh, within the, the, the practices of, of insurance companies. And uh, that was due to go live in 1st of January 2014, but it does look like it is, uh, it's been delayed for a couple of years now. Um, I showed you a UK advert earlier. Australia tends to have more hard-hitting adverts. Um, uh, I wasn't going to show you one of those, but I did find this one, which I thought you'd like, because it's quite, it was quite amusing. That's where I'll leave it. Thank you very much.